We are in Romans chapter 6. If you're a guest with us today, we've been uh, working our way through key passages in this book. And I want to begin, before we get to chapter 6, actually, if you've got your Bible open, it's going to be on the screen as well. I want to look at a couple of verses in chapter 5 that sort of segue into chapter 6. So chapter 5, Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith and into this grace in which we now stand. Then verse 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And then look how he closes the chapter in verses 20 and 21. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The way Paul ends what we label as chapter 5 is really a great segue into chapter 6. In fact, what I want to do in our study today is look at some key passages in chapter 6 that, ask, that answer the question, what does baptism have to do with grace? What does baptism have to do with grace? And I'll share this with you. When our kids were younger, we wanted to get a dog. They were uh, old enough, we thought, to be ready for a dog. And so we did our research, and we selected a yellow lab. And we loved Libby. Uh, loved Libby so much. And some of you have pets. You know the feeling where the dog becomes like a part of the family. And we really felt that way about her. And we did, in our research, remember learning, you know, all dogs have this to some degree, but especially labs love to chew. And several of the books we read and friends that had labs told us, you've got to make sure you supply them with a lot of chew toys because they will chew on everything. And boy, is that true. If you've got a lab, you know that is true. And sometimes you give them chew toys and they still chew on things they shouldn't chew. We had to learn to put our shoes away. You couldn't leave your shoes out. Sometimes we would find Libby chewing on a shoe and it didn't belong to any of us. And we thought, whose shoe is that? We thought some poor neighbor came out and they only had one shoe at their back door. You've had dogs. You, you know what I mean by that. She seemed to know when we had friends coming over. It's sort of like she was getting ready for us. Like we'd invite somebody to come over after church on Sunday night. And during that time, she'd go and kill a rabbit and leave the carcass on the doorstep. You know, kind of a gift. And we'd get frustrated with her, but we realized that was her nature. Now, she was a dog. We could train her and teach her, but that was her nature. There was one time I remember she, she chewed up a pair of my prescription sunglasses. Prescription sunglasses. And it wasn't that I left them on the doorstep or where she could get them. I put them on a table outside, just went inside, and she knew they were my sunglasses. But I had to remember she was just a dog. She did not know they cost hundreds of dollars to repair. See, a few things will reveal the true nature of a dog is when we leave them unattended, either in our yard or even worse, in our houses. You ever found you come back home after a while and they 
tear something up. And on a more serious note, how many times have we watched a news story where a dog attacks a child or another person? And they interview the owner. And the owner will say, well, you know, my dog just wouldn't hurt a flea. And we say, well, yeah, if you're there with them or they treat you that way. But we have to remember they're a dog. And that is in their nature. Now, I'm not saying or inferring that we're like animals or like we're like dogs at all. But we do have a nature that we have to deal with. And as we read through Romans, we discover a lot about our human nature. You know, the Bible tells us that we are created in God's image, and, and that is true, and that's a wonderful thought. But sometimes our thoughts and actions make us look like we belong more to the evil one. And in fact, in the next chapter in Romans 7, he writes about this, how I know what's right and I want to do what's right, but sometimes I don't do what I know I ought to do. And then chapter 8, he talks about what it means to be adopted and to be in this family. But meanwhile... It's like God can't leave us alone for any length of time before our human nature will just rear its ugly head and we're doing something that we don't want to do. You know, the first time man sinned, he had help from the devil. But ever since then, it's like we didn't need his help. We do pretty good with that on our own. James chapter 1 talks about being drawn away by our own evil desires. And we just look around in our creation and realize that we are in a spiritual mess. We may not want to sin, but we do. And what can we do about that? Are we stuck in this, this slavery to sins? And is there any hope? Is there any way out? And the Bible says yes. And the book of Romans kind of answers that, that God supplied the way. He paid the price. He gives us a way to get out of that bondage. And this work of God is called grace. Amazing grace. When God's word in Romans speaks about this, the answer is clear. Now, remember our study so far in the book of Romans. He, he opens the letter and he says to this church he's never been to, not yet. He wanted to go, but at the time of writing, he had not been there. And so he says in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then from the middle of chapter 1 all the way through the, by the middle of chapter 3, he lays out the case that all of us are sinners. All of us. None of us are without sin. And then the second section that starts in chapter 3, about verse 20, through the end of chapter 5, he talks about how it is through faith in God that we're made right. Righteousness. We talked about that last week. Well, today we get to the third section about how do we enter this grace. And this starts here in chapter 6 and goes to the end of chapter 8. But today I want us to look mainly in chapter 6 about this transition from the old life to a new life. You might remember we had a, a couple of lessons about the old self and the new self, about pushing the reset button. Because the Bible talks about this image often, and this is mentioned in Romans chapter 6. He talks about this amazing process that describes this transformation. It's like in chapter 6, this is our emancipation moment. This is when we mark it down. This is when it happens. And so chapter 6 is all about this change from the old to the new, from the old way of living to this freedom from sin. And it's all about grace that's properly understood and properly applied. And this grace is the transforming work of God. But each of us also have a part in it. We have to receive it. Not everybody receives God's grace. And so not everybody will be saved. But, and this is a difficult truth, 
some who do not receive God's, receive God's grace, they've still been trained. And they can be quite good people, moral people even. But think about that. Again, I use this analogy of a dog. We can train a dog to be well-disciplined. And some dogs are trained better than others. But again, in the end, we have to remember their nature. In their core, they're still dogs. You can train a sinner to act better, behave better. But it's more than just actions. Because otherwise, they're still a sinner. So Paul spends quite a bit of the book of Romans explaining the sin problem. We can't fix it. We can't get everything right. Even when we know what is right, we don't always do what we know is right. So the only way to fix this old nature is to do away with it, to put it to death so we can be raised anew in Jesus Christ. So Paul mentions this in chapter 6 head on. and gives us a clear picture. When studying this, this uh, chapter, I read through it a number of times and read several commentaries and several different articles. And one man talked about a movie regarding Henry. You might remember the movie. I think it came out in the early 90s with Harrison Ford. Well, he plays the part of this lawyer who was just a royal jerk of a person at home, at work. In fact, the opening scene, uh, the movie opens with him concealing evidence so that he can win the court case. That's how, that's how unscrupulous he was. He hides the evidence all the time, and he says, that's how I pay for my client's ticket out of trouble. It was also how he paid for his mistress and his other sinful lifestyle. We attend dinners with people that he needs to hobnob with and brown nose with, and he doesn't care about them. He doesn't even remember their names, and his wife has to help him to even remember their names. He's got a daughter, but they're so disconnected, he doesn't even know her. He's so demanding. She's never good enough. She brings home all A's and one B, and all he can do is harp on that B. You've got to try harder. This is who he is, this royal jerk of a person at home, at work. One night after a party, he goes to a local convenience store to get some cigarettes. He enters the store. There's a robbery going on. He gets shot in the head. He dies. But they're able to resuscitate him. And so for the days that follow, they don't know if he's going to make it or not. But he lives. But his memory is gone. He has to learn how to walk and talk. He doesn't know his family. He doesn't know, remember anything. And his wife and daughter, they're just right there with him. They work with him. And it's like he's a new person. As the days pass, his wife is there with him at every step. And he, grow, he grows to truly love this woman. And his daughter as well, they grow with this special bond. She's teaching him, there's one scene where she's teaching him how to tie his shoes. And he said, where did you learn to do that? And she said, you taught me, Dad. He truly is a new person. He starts to read through some old cases trying to restore his memory. He so wants to, to get back at it. And he finds a file that has the evidence in it that he hid how could he do that? So he takes that file and he gives it to the person that he defeated in court and says, you need this. It's a compelling story about life changed from bad to good. He begins as this certified royal jerk, but then ends with him being this upstanding, wonderful, honest man. So Hollywood kind of frames the question very well. What do you do? How do you fix a jerk? 
You kill him. And then you bring him back to life. Interesting. Because in Romans chapter 6, that's exactly how Paul describes it. How we get rid of that old nature and get this new life in Jesus Christ. For years, I, I thought of Romans chapter 6 as an amazing chapter on baptism. In fact, if you're the kind that like to underline or write in your Bibles, or if you've had your Bible for a while, like the, the Bible I'm using now, I, Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, it's all like one page is opened up and it's about to come out. Because I've marked on it so much, and there's so much there, and, and it's such a good chapter. In so many ways, it does explain baptism. How we follow Jesus in his steps. He died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. He was brought back to life. In baptism, we die to self. We're buried in the waters of baptism. We come out a new creation. And that what, that's what happens in our baptism. And God tells us here that we become united with him in his likeness. In this death. This is what baptism is for us. Becoming united with Jesus. His, daryl, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And we can just kind of see that. But when you read Romans, and even chapter 6, it's really not so much about baptism. In fact, when Paul writes this, he's not trying to explain, now you all need to be baptized. He's writing like, well, you already, already have been baptized. He's like reminding them of the significance, the meaning, the purpose of what's going on here. It's rich with symbolism. In fact, I want to call your attention before we read these verses. In this section, he uses a number of past tense verbs that explains what happens to us when we put our faith in Jesus. So we who died to sin, that we were baptized, we were buried, our old self was crucified, we are one who has died, we have died. All of those, except for one, one baptism was once, the rest of them is all about death. It's all about death. Look at your Bibles at Romans chapter 6. You see how this, Paul lays this out. In verse 2 there, it says, we died to sin. Verse 3, we were baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried with Christ through baptism into his death. In order that Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we live this new life. Then verse 5, we're united with Christ in the likeness of his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7, we were set free from sin. Verse 8, it's when we died with Christ. Verse 11, we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. Verse 17, we obeyed from the heart. We're not trapped in the sin anymore. And then verse 18, we're set free and we become slaves to righteousness. It's all about receiving God's saving and transforming grace through faith. Think about this for a moment. This is, again, Paul makes the argument of how sinful we are and how much we need grace. And this is the answer. But Paul, understanding, kind of anticipating, he asks two questions. Two questions. The first is in verse 1 and the second one is verse 15. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Remember, he ended chapter 5 talking about this grace. So he opens what we label as chapter 6. He's continuing the thought. Shall we continue, go on sinning that grace may increase? And then repeats the question, kind of reframes it in verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? See, these verses serve as kind of an explanation of saving grace. 
It's not an excuse to sin. Paul's like, I know where you're going. I know what you may be thinking. Others might jump ahead. Don't go there is what he's saying here. That's not how you understand grace. In fact, if that's how you understand grace, then you miss it. And so he spends this chapter explaining. Now, it is true that the more you sin, the more grace abounds. And even as your sin increases, grace increases. But that's not why. We need to understand that. It's not to give us freedom to sin. We're made free from sin. And this work of God in the life of his child is called grace. This is what it is. He's calling us to be like Jesus. Those of us who believe the gospel are united with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection by baptism. So in our baptism, we enter Jesus' death. We're cleansed by his blood. We're united with him. We've got this bond. He went there. We go there. We share that together. And now we're free from the law and sin. That's what God is telling us here. Let me share the way one commentary, F.F. Bruce, explained it. We may agree or disagree with Paul, but we must do him the justice of letting him hold and teach his own beliefs and not distort his beliefs into conformity with what we should prefer him to have said. And then he shares this. From this and other references to baptism in Paul's writings, it is certain that he did not regard baptism as an optional extra. Because it wasn't an optional extra. It wasn't an optional extra to Jesus. In fact, if you remember... Just before he left the earth, he said to his disciples, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. God's grace justifies that condemned sinner who has faith. And in chapter 6, Paul explains how that happens, when that happens, how we enter the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Baptism. So why baptism? That's the question. Why baptism? Well, I put a little picture on your outline if you've got a, a copy. And if you didn't, you can grab one as you're leaving. It's on the back of the bulletin. But think about this. I put in the very middle an image of the cross, the tomb, and a symbol of, of, the, of the risen Lord, like he came out of the grave. And put at the very top of that, you see, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he did for us. So then as we're baptized, then at the very bottom of that, put baptism into Christ is our acceptance of God's grace. Now, what is life like beforehand? So put on the left side of your page there, slaves to sin. Because that's what we were. That categorized our life. And a lot of thoughts come to mind that you can put under that. Uh, we are sin, death, lust, unrighteousness, under the law, slaves to sin, impurity, lawlessness, shame. And the list goes on and on. So that's before this death. So what about after? We'll put it on the right side of the page, free in Christ. Because that's what happens. We are free in Christ. And this new life then... Think about all the words that we see in Scripture. Grace, free from sin, united with Christ, alive to God, righteousness, sanctification, enslaved to God, eternal life. Before, we were slaves to sin. 
Afterwards, we're free in Christ. And what divides the sinners from the saints is the death, burial, and resurrection. See, Jesus is not just some trainer, just a teacher who's going to train us or teach us to behave better. It's more than that. He's not a lawyer trying to hide evidence so that he can manipulate things and, and help us to win our case that we get eternal life. Jesus is our sacrifice. He's the way, the truth, and the life. It's his death, it's his burial, and his resurrection that we receive this grace. And this occurs when we're baptized. That's when, that's how we receive it. It is a gift of God. It is not a work of man. Now, in the class I teach in the Family Center, we're studying through the, the book of Galatians, and Paul repeatedly talks about walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, no longer living according to the flesh. But I want to share a couple of thoughts. Think about this. There are some who think placing too much attention on baptism is dangerous. Placing too much attention on baptism is dangerous. And that can be the case for sure. You can go too far. Some people do this. Maybe your upbringing, you had an overemphasis on baptism, so much so that when you're asked about your salvation, the first thing you, you think of is, well, yeah, I'm saved because I've been baptized. That's the first thing. That may be an indicator that you had an overemphasis of baptism. But you're not saved because you're baptized. How many of us as children would practice that in the creek or in the pool? Anybody can be immersed. There's more to it than going under. You were saved by the grace of God through faith. But you accept that grace in your baptism. It was God who saved you. See, if you see baptism as something you do to earn salvation, then it becomes a human work. You get the credit. It's something you did. It's like your effort to earn the grace. And if you've studied this before, we don't use the term much, but if you studied it, we, we call this way of thinking baptismal regeneration. Where it's like, it's like everything is on your baptism. So that's one extreme view. But because of that extreme view, others say that baptism has nothing to do with salvation. They acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves, and, and baptism is a part of that. But what's at stake here is if we admit that baptism is actually how we come in contact. That's what we need to understand. See, in reaction to this and other teaching years ago, there's a large number of people in the whole Protestant movement. And I say that with a broad brush. I'm not talking about everybody. They're trying to get away from this works righteousness, earn your way, that they just totally threw out baptism altogether. Because it has no part of salvation. But a reaction against false teaching sometimes creates an overreaction into another false teaching. And discovering the purpose of baptism involves receiving God's grace through faith. That's what Paul is explaining here. See, I've observed an interesting phenomenon I'll share with you. Those who decry baptism's connection with salvation to the loudest will, will say that, you know, you're not saved by works. It's not by something that you do. But they will preach salvation by works more than they realize. They'll say you have to believe. But believe is something you do. 
So that's a work. That's something, even if it's spiritually endowed, if, if God is a part of that process, it's still something you do. They'll say you have to confess the Lord. But confession is something that you do. It's still a work of man. They'll talk about just, just say this prayer. But saying a prayer is something that you do. It's still a work of man. But when the Bible talks about baptism, think about it. It's something that is done to you. So you can't really put it in the category of works because it's something that is done to you. Yet the only one that you don't do is thought by some to be a work that you do. And that's why they separate it from a part of salvation. In baptism, a believing, repenting, confessing, praying sinner, and I emphasize that word sinner because you realize as Paul said, I am a sinner accepts Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as a payment for my sin. I get it. I can't do it on my own. And you come out of the water, and you're clean, and you're free. You're washed. You're made holy. And it's done in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God does the work. God does the work. He gets all the credit. The baptized one receives the grace. He receives the forgiveness. And all of these are gifts from God. They're not works. They're not a reward for our works. See, understanding Romans chapter 6, this rich, rich chapter, we kind of see the imagery here of what's going on in our baptism. And to put it in the proper perspective, in fact, I want to share a couple of other verses that mention baptism. And I think studying through Romans 6 helps us to better understand these verses as well. Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Acts 2, 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts twenty two sixteen. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. Romans 6, back to verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Galatians 3, 27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. Colossians 2, 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. 1 Peter 3.21 And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. In this letter to the Romans, Paul makes the case that we are all sinners. He tells us that. And just like Abraham, our only hope is faith. Faith that God will do what he says he will do. And we are counted as righteous through that faith. And so Paul explains in chapter 6 how this happens. It culminates in our baptism. It's not an afterthought. It's not an option. It's a part of the process. 
And we need to remember that having faith does not mean passivity. It doesn't mean just acknowledging that there is a God out there somewhere. It's trusting that there is no way I can be saved except through Jesus. He's my salvation. It's a gift. It's a gift. Note how he closes the chapter. Romans 6, verse 22 and 23. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. When you do this, it leads to holiness. The result is eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. And a part of that song, as we always make in that invitation, is for you to be baptized. If you're ready to do what Paul explains here, to receive God's grace, the way you do that, just as Jesus died and was buried and was brought to life again, you die to self. You're buried in the water of grave of baptism, and you're brought up, and you're a new creation. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free. If you need baptism or if we can pray for you in any way, would you come as we stand and sing?